Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce today's event, Canada's Oil Sands, Getting the Oil and Transporting It. The topic generates no shortage of opinions, emotion, and plenty of impassioned arguments, with one of Canada's musical icons being the latest to weigh in. There is no denying that Canada's energy sector, led by oil and gas, is a key driver of our economy. According to the federal regulatory agency, the National Energy Board, oil production will increase by 75% and gas production by 25% by 2035. Economic growth, strong energy reserves, worldwide demand. On its face, these are positive benefits. So why the controversy? Let's dig deeper with two of Canada's energy sector leaders. As President and Chief Executive Officer, Brian Ferguson is responsible for overall leadership of Synovus Energy's strategic and operational performance. Synovus Energy has oil sands projects in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and has part ownership of two U.S. refineries. In 2012, Mr. Ferguson completed a two-year term on the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, CAPS, Board of Governors. He continues to participate on several of its committees, including the Oil Sands CEO Council. Russ Gerling assumed the position of President and Chief Executive Officer of TransCanada Corporation in 2010. Prior to his current position, he was Chief Operating Officer responsible for overseeing TransCanada's uh, pipeline and energy businesses, corporate development, and major projects. For more than 60 years, TransCanada has been a leader in developing and operating energy infrastructure including natural gas and oil pipelines, power generation, and gas storage facilities. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to let our live audience know that following the presentations, Susan MacArthur, director of the Canadian Club, will, will be moderating a discussion with Mr. Ferguson and Mr. Gerling, and this will be the chance for the live audience to participate in this conversation by filling out the Q&A cards at your table. Please fill them out, and a volunteer will be by to collect them. Now, without further ado, let me first welcome Brian Ferguson to our podium, who will then be followed by Russ Gerling. Brian, the Canadian Club of Canada's podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. Thanks, Gordon, and thank you all for being here today. Today, I'd like to have and start a conversation that I think all Canadians should be having from coast to coast. It's a conversation about energy, the role it plays in our daily lives, and the role that we as Canadians play in producing it. This country is blessed with an abundance of resources. It's part of what makes us strong, but it also makes us a target. Because we produce oil the world needs, special interest groups have accused Canadians of being lax when it comes to the environment. They've implied that we have weak morals and soft laws. Nothing could be further from the truth. Canadians should be outraged by these allegations. Access to reliable, affordable energy is a defining characteristic of any developed society. We're lucky to have it in this country. It affords us a standard of living and a quality of life that billions of people 
in Asia and the developing world aspire to. Every day we flick on a switch, the lights come on, our computers boot up, we heat our homes, we can bring in food from around the world to our grocery stores. The very quality of our lives in Canada depends on energy sources that we take for granted every day until we don't have them. This winter, hundreds of thousands of Canadians have had a very bitter taste of what life is like without access to heat or power. That likely includes a few of you here in the room today. Now imagine what it would be like if also you did not have access, reliable access to gasoline, jet fuel, diesel oil, plastic, and all the other oil-based products that we depend upon for our daily lives. Oil is the form of energy that is consumed more than any other in the world. It's also one that is most controversial. People get emotional about oil. Wars have been fought over oil. Protesters turn out in the thousands to fight pipelines that will transport oil. Like a character in a Hollywood movie, oil has been cast as a villain. It's no coincidence that celebrities like Robert Redford have been trash-talking oil. In Hollywood, the land of make-believe, everything is black and white, good and evil. It makes for a very compelling story, but the real world does not work that way. And when it comes to energy, Hollywood stereotypes are unhelpful and in many instances just simply dead wrong. So it's time to inject a little reality into the energy debate. I am proud to work for an oil company. We make people's lives better. Oil allows farmers to increase production using equipment as opposed to animals or human labor. Oil runs the machines that make everyday products like smartphones, clothing, and furniture. Above all, oil fuels our transportation system. It allows us to go to work, to travel abroad. It's essential for the trade of Canadian goods and services around the world. You might be very shocked to hear that 40% of the world's population lives without access to affordable energy like oil. They simply subsist. These people deserve more, and they are demanding more. According to the U.S. Energy Information Agency, global energy demand is expected to increase by 56% over the next three decades. So what does that mean for oil? You might think oil will soon be replaced by wind, solar, or other forms of energy that have been labeled as alternative or, or clean. I completely agree that we need all forms of energy to meet the world's growing demand. But no other energy source comes close to matching oil's versatility and its affordability. That's why Canada has such a clear advantage. Our country has the third largest oil resource on the planet. 
174 billion barrels of oil resource that is recoverable using today's technologies. 97% of that resource is in the oil sands. Over the next decade, oil sands production in Canada is expected to double, and that has our critics screaming. They want you to believe that the planet is doomed if oil sands production continues. They say new oil pipelines must be stopped at all costs. They call it dirty oil, you know, the most destructive project on earth. These accusations are absolutely baseless, yet they make front page headlines. As I said earlier, Canadians should be outraged by these allegations. It's time that we started thinking critically about this subject. The fact is, oil from the oil sands is being produced responsibly. The Canadian oil and gas industry is among the most highly regulated in the world with strict operating standards. It's also a fact that the oil sands make a huge contribution to the Canadian economy. They employ thousands of people across the country, directly and indirectly, through new manufacturing, service, and supply jobs. Oil sands producers pay billions of dollars in taxes and royalties. It helps fund Canadian health care, education, roads, and much, much more. Despite these clear economic benefits, critics say oil sands development should be slowed or stopped to protect the environment. I absolutely agree the environment has to be a key consideration in all that we do as an industry. And I can assure you that it is, despite what those critics have been saying. Let's take greenhouse gas emissions as an example. It's one of their favorite topics and one of the biggest challenges. Critics would have you believe that emissions from the oil sands are melting the Arctic and even killing polar bears. Well, the truth is that oil sands account for one six hundredth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. That is a fraction of one percent. It's the equivalent of about a tablespoon in 10 liters of water. Does that mean that we don't have to do better? Of course we have to do better. All human activity, whether it's resource development, manufacturing, tourism, home building, has an impact on the environment. We all need to do better. And in the oil sands, we are working on improvements every day using innovation and technology. Sonovus, I think, is a great example of Canadian innovation and technology in action. When most people think of the oil sands, they imagine open pit mines and giant trucks and shovels and tailings ponds. That is not what we do at Sonovus. We are one of the next generation of oil sands producers. We use techniques that were pioneered right here in Canada. We drill into the oil sands reservoir hundreds of meters below surface. We inject steam into it and th that softens the thick oil so that we can pump it to the surface. From a single well pad, we can access a huge underground reservoir with essentially no surface disturbance. 
80% of the oil sands will eventually be developed using these drilling techniques or similar ones. Two or three decades ago, nobody thought that this would ever be possible. Today we are doing it, and we are getting better every day as we do this. When we encounter challenges, like greenhouse gas emissions, we don't throw up our hands and say, okay, we need to shut down. What we do is we find solutions and we improve our performance. Canadians should be proud of the way that this resource is being developed. I'm proud, but that does not mean that I am satisfied. We don't have all the answers yet, and we are working on them. Let me leave you with a challenge. I'm asking all of you to become more informed about the oil industry and the oil sands. There are some great resources on the internet. Check out what the critics are saying. But get the rest of the story. Get the full picture from industry, from government, from academics. I suggest you might start with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers website. You can go to Synovus's information microsite, moretothestory.com. You do not need to be an engineer. You just need to set aside the stereotypes and get the facts before making up your mind. And the next time that you hear somebody making sensational statements that seem inaccurate, incorrect, unfounded, make sure that you question them. Because the energy industry is a very big deal for our country. It's too big to be ignored, and it's too big to be taken for granted. Thank you, and I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Now I'll ask Russ to... So thank you and, and uh, for the opportunity to speak here at the uh, Canadian Club today. Um, as, and, and thank you to Brian for uh, kicking off this topic for us today and, and sort of honestly getting uh, the message out of, of the importance of this resource not only to our country but, but to the rest of the world. Um, as he pointed out, um, as Canadians we are blessed with uh, more affordable crude oil resources, you know, the most important energy source on the earth than we're ever going to need as, as a country. And that's a position I believe that we, we often take for, for granted, um, and a position that is very rare around the world. Um, you know, countries like Korea and Japan, who are running, you know, trying to compete with us and grow their economies, import 97% of their, their energy needs, and we have ours more than we need right here at home. Um, growing economies like India and China, um, those economies are going to be based on uh, an affordable supply of, of crude oil from someplace like Canada as you know, one to two billion people migrate to, uh, uh, to the cities and want to buy cars and live in homes like, like we live in and enjoy the luxuries that, that we, we have. Uh, and even in the United States, um, which is the largest oil-consuming uh, uh, country on earth, meets about 60% of their needs for oil from places offshore, hence why they spend so much money protecting um, the free flow of oil to the United States. And I think irrespective of, of the rhetoric that uh, you might hear, under any scenario, the demand for oil is going to increase um, in, in the world. We will develop other technologies. Um, and in my view, uh, Canada has all the tools 
Um, it has the technology, the human talent, um, environmental regulation, rule of law to protect foreign investment that will come into this country to actually support the development. We have all of the tools to be the most responsible and reliable and preferred supplier of oil of anybody on, on Earth. Um, and if we get it right, um, this industry can be the single greatest driver of the Canadian economy as well. And when I say Canadian economy, I mean that for all Canadians, not just Western Canadians. And I've got some examples in my, my talk here where I'll talk about you know, the benefits here in, in Ontario. But as Brian pointed out, some people are fundamentally opposed to hydrocarbon development and probably more importantly for us to the development of the Canadian oil sands. Their concerns appear primarily related to CO2. Um, and I understand that, but they've erroneously targeted the oil sands as uh, the world's largest CO2 problem. Um, they've made up phrases, which are catchy, um, like the oil sands are the largest carbon bomb on Earth. Um, and if you develop it, um, you'll get this, and if they say, if you, if you develop it, it's game over for the planet. I mean, obviously that scares people, frightening claims, but they're based in fantasy and, and not, not in reality. Um, unlike most countries around the world that produce oil, um, Canada and the oil sands actually monitor closely those emissions every day. Um, and those numbers are available on the Environment Canada website. We've got nothing to hide. Um, as Brian pointed out, the fact is, you know, they produce a small fraction of global GHGs. Um, and when you think about it in the Canadian context, it's about 7% of Canada's global GHGs. So you know, hardly the largest carbon bomb even in Canada, much less the world. Um, but as Brian said, you know, that's, you know, that's not a reason for us not to do better. Um, we understand the transition to a less carbon-intensive energy future, and in fact, TransCanada is investing as fast as anyone um, in, in that new technology. Here in Ontario, um, with our partners, we recently spent $5 billion refurbishing Units 1 and 2 at Bruce Nuclear to produce 1,500 megawatts of emission-less energy for the province. Um, we have nine solar projects under uh, development here in the province. We've recently bought, brought four online. Um, we've spent uh, close to $2 billion here recently on natural gas fire generation, which allowed the province to achieve its goal of entirely transitioning off uh, uh, coal-based fuels by the end of this year. Uh, but even with those kinds of changes in our energy industry, which are substantial, um, we're still going to need natural gas to heat our homes here. Uh, we're going to need uh, fuel for our vehicles. And that's for decades to come, and not just here at, uh, you know, in Canada, but in the rest of the world where they're demanding these kind of products in our, in our standard of living. As Brian pointed out, this isn't a choice between oil and gas and alternative energy. Um, that's the way that many of our opponents have framed this issue, but it's simple, simply you know, not correct. Um, this is about the responsible development of, of all energy resources, which are all going to be required to meet our changing and growing needs, both here and abroad. But unfortunately, those who oppose the development um, have successfully delayed the construction um, of the reliable and important infrastructure that we need to move that product to market. Um, the, the, the key one, which I'm sure you all know about, is, is our Keystone XL project, which has the unique position in the world where we're sitting next to this large consuming nation um, to link, hardwire link, um, growing supply to the largest consuming nation on, on Earth. Um, just to be clear, the U.S. consumes every day 15 million barrels a day of oil, and they import 8.5 million barrels a day of that oil from someplace else around the world. Um, and even with their growing production, which is now you know, growing about a million and a half barrels a day, 
um, increasing efficiency standards. The International Energy Agency and the U.S.'s own Energy um, Information Administration forecast that they're going to need imported oil well beyond 2040. The notion that they're going to become self-sufficient um, anytime soon is a fiction um, that's been created by anti-oil activists um, to suggest that projects, important infrastructure projects like the Keystone Pipeline, are no longer, are longer necessary. But the truth is that today the U.S. consumes about 3 million barrels a day of our oil, um, oil that helps that country start 250 million vehicles every morning for people to go to work, um, you know, take their kids to school. Um, that's what's necessary. And I don't think that, you know, I can't imagine that anybody really believes that shutting down the Keystone Pipeline um, is going to stop them from buying oil from someplace around the world, nor is it going to stop us from producing the oil or the U.S. from increasing their production because that's what they're going to do. Um, they haven't slowed down the development here. They haven't slowed development uh, in the United States. And that's what our opponents have hoped that it would do. And it clearly is a strategy that's not successful. Since 2008, when we made our application to build the Keystone Pipeline, oil production in Canada has grown by about 700,000 barrels a day. That's about the size of Keystone. The U.S. has grown their production by a million and a half barrels a day. So in total, we've got two and a half times Keystone of new production, and we don't have the facilities to move that oil to market. Um, so during the five-year delayed regulatory process, what's happened, um, we're moving more oil by rail, um, more GHG emissions, and it's costing a lot more money to do that than it would otherwise cost. So material cost to both the environment and a material cost to our economy. Natural Resources Canada has estimated that the effect of not having more access for that crude oil and the reduction in, in price that, that the Canadian producers receive is costing our economy about $18 billion a year. And just to put that in context, our deficit in this country was $18 billion a year in 2012. So this is material to, to our economy. And that is why everyone from our Prime Minister to the Premier of British Columbia to the Premier of New Brunswick is talking about the importance of market access. So I said, you know, Keystone XL is not about uh, uh, conventional energy versus the environment. It quite simply is about where Americans want to get their oil from. Is it from Canada or from elsewhere around the world? And how do they want to get it there? By a truck, by a train, or by a safe pipeline? And similarly, TransCanada's Energy East project is about where Canada is going to get its oil from. And as Brian mentioned, you know, the oil sands in, in Canada hold about 170 billion barrels uh, of oil that can be recovered with today's technology. But in spite of those tremendous resources, it may be a surprise to, to, to many of you that Canadian, Eastern Canadian refineries primarily rely upon foreign sources of crude oil to meet their needs, um, primarily from Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Nigeria and not from Western Canada. And why that is, is because we don't have the pipeline infrastructure to get it from those locations. So our Energy East project is about converting 3,000 kilometers of our gas pipeline system, adding new construction to it to attach the new supply and to attach uh, the markets, um, the refineries in the east and, and export terminals in both Quebec and New Brunswick uh, to our system. Um, it's a big project. It's a $12 billion project, 100% private sector funded. Uh, it'll create about 10,000 jobs across the country in terms of construction, about 1,000 enduring jobs. 20% um, of those jobs will be right here in, in Ontario. It'll generate about $35 billion of GDP, $10 billion of taxes. About 35% of that will be right here in, uh, uh, in, in Ontario. Um, and at the same time, we're working at this sustaining projects that, that sort of will have benefits across the company. We recognize um, that we have to improve 
our safety and reliability to ensure that the public can be confident in, in what we're doing. We're already the safest way to move oil, um, but we're not perfect and we have incidents and we recognize that and we're upfront about that. As a company and as an industry, our goal is to achieve zero incident rates. We know that that's going to be difficult, but without setting the target, you're never going to get there. And I believe that we can get there uh, by improving our technology. We're spending billions of dollars on new processes and, and procedures. With XL, for example, Keystone XL, we've adopted 57 conditions um, that are be above and beyond industry standard that will make that pipeline the safest pipeline that's ever been built. Um, at the same time, we're focused on taking that knowledge and technology and focusing on those same things for, for energies project. People need oil, uh, but they need to know that it's being delivered safely. We know that we can do that, and we are going to do that. Canadians are very clever. Um, companies like Synovus um, have demonstrated you know, their creativity by unlocking that energy source in, in, in a very environmentally responsible way. And we as a company um, are a leader in the world. Um, com countries around the world look to TransCanada uh, for their expertise in how do you build these links between production source and market source. So we are market leaders, world leaders in, in what we do. Um, and it's important that we get past this rhetoric, use our intellectual talents, focus on the facts, improve our technology, improve our processes, and if we do, we can create extraordinary benefits for Canadians from, from, from coast to coast. We have the opportunity to, uh, uh, to be the global leader, is where I started my talk, um, in responsible and friendly resource development. Canadians should not accept anything less than the most responsible and best uh, energy developers. Uh, we can do this. The opportunity, in my view, is simply ours to either seize or to lose. And I look forward to uh, a continued conversation with, uh, uh, with, uh, with all of you over the, uh, the coming minutes. And uh, um, thank you again for taking the time today to, to listen to our story. Energy certainly is a very important topic for Canadians, and thank you very much. We're lucky here to have uh, two very important CEOs here from Synovus and TransCanada Pipeline. So just let, tell us a little bit, how urgent do you think energy infrastructure is in Canada, and do you think we're in uh, danger of actually missing the boat? I'll start, and then uh, perhaps Russ can jump in. I, you know, there is a sense that we have a number of years to resolve these issues and get, get access. Uh, I actually disagree with that. I think that, you know, again, we compete in a global environment. It's a global economy. Uh, Asia, other developing countries will figure out other sources to get supply from if they can't get it from Canada. So I actually think we're talking about weeks or months. I don't think we're talking about years in which we have to get our minds around and to address the questions, the concerns, and resolve this. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Is, is it, uh, this is a competitive world that, that we live in. And um, we, we talked a lot of today about oil, but there's also natural gas. Um, and, and as Canadians, we have this opportunity to capture market. And my experience would be is if you don't capture the market, somebody else will. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, if we miss that, that window, I guess my, my best example is the Mackenzie Valley is uh, we had an opportunity in this country, in my view, to, uh, to develop the north. Um, we had high gas prices. 
We had governments that were flush with, uh, with money that could support you know, the social infrastructure that was going to be required to build a pipeline and create that economic development in the north. But the regulatory process took six years before we got a permit. In that ensuing time, gas prices fell. The economy fell apart. We went into a recession. Governments weren't flush with money. And we lost the opportunity to actually create infrastructure that would have allowed us to develop the northern part of this country. It's, a, it's an opportunity that's going to be lost for decades to come. This is exactly the same thing. We have to, when markets open up, you have to take advantage of them. You have to do it responsibly. Uh, but make no mistake is, is that world changes relatively quickly. And if you miss the opportunity, you may lose it for decades and decades to come. So we're sitting here in Toronto. Um, why should Ontarians care about the urgency of this, this issue? And what does it mean for us if we, Canada actually does miss the boat on this energy infrastructure? Well, I, I can, you know, again, you know, I'll give a, a shot at that. But this is, as, as I said, um, the refineries in Ontario and Quebec consume today mostly foreign crude oil. When you think about it, it's about 700,000 barrels a day. So 700,000 barrels a day equates to about $25 billion a year. $25 billion a year that we send offshore in this country to someplace else around the world for them to create jobs with. You think of $25 billion of stimulus into the Canadian economy every year in perpetuity by buying those resources here, and all of the uh, uh, ancillary uh, manufacturing and parts and pieces that actually have to go into developing that resource, all of those jobs get created here as well. So if we want to create jobs and economic development in this country, across this country, I can't think of, a, of an annual $25 billion stimulus that's sitting out there right in front of us just to see. So that's important for all Canadians. Brian? Uh, you know, one of the things that we do is we purchase a lot of goods and services outside of Alberta. Uh, you know, there's over 600 companies in Ontario that my company buys goods and services from every day that we use in, uh, in, in developing the oil sands. You know, think about the transfer payments, for example, that come from the resource development, the royalty revenues that are generated, whether it's in Alberta or Saskatchewan or British Columbia, for example, for natural gas. Well, that, that, that goes across the country. That's what, as a country, we use to support our standard of living, our healthcare system, all of our our social programs, you know, it, it is critically important to us. And to, to me, it defies logic, as Russ pointed out, that we are a country with the third largest oil resource on the planet, and we are importing oil from other jurisdictions because we haven't taken the time to develop our own resource for the benefit of Canadians. Let's talk about the oil sands. California has oil sands production. How do we and Synovus, for example, stack up against the Californias, Californians when it comes to environmentally responsible energy production? Great. Uh, e excellent question. So California produces a heavy crude oil. In fact, they were the ones that came up with the idea of injecting steam and, and thermal recovery of oil, and then we took it and modified it here in Canada so it could be used to develop the oil sands like we do today. Uh, in my company's case, uh, the amount of steam that we inject to produce a barrel of oil results, that's what generates the GHG emissions. You'll probably be surprised to know that because we have a low steam-to-oil ratio, on a life cycle basis, the GHGs associated with our type of production, SAG-D production, are less than the GHGs associated with the average barrel that's produced in the United States, 
and dramatically better than what's produced in California. And by a factor, they're, they're, they're about twice as carbon intensive in terms of generation of that oil. So what's wrong with Neil Young? Is he not reading these facts? <laughs> uh, I, I think that's Do you guys a have a rock star in your back pocket that can help you out here? <laughs> I, I think that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Tell us, tell, us, tell us about the facts. I think, honestly, Canadians need to understand more about the facts about the environmental issues and also the native issues uh, with respect to Canadian oil practices. How do we stack up against the world? Sure. We just um, had the Californian example, but from a regulatory standpoint, how do we stack up? So Canada has an absolutely world-class regulatory system in terms of all of our natural resource development and in particular for any oil and gas development. Uh, using my company as an example, for me to get approval for another phase of oil sands development, there's three agencies in Alberta that have to review and approve, and there's four agencies in Ottawa that have to review and approve. That typically takes me, start to finish, four years by the time I do all the environmental work. That takes two years. Then it's two years through a regulatory approval process, and then it takes me two to three years for construction. So start to finish, I'm looking at six to seven years before we can actually begin to produce oil. But that, what I, well, the reason I, I give you the example of the length of the process is to give you an example of the stringency of the process. You don't find that in any other jurisdiction in the world where there is that level uh, of stringency. Uh, let me give you an example of the type of environmental performance, for example. You know, people talk about environmental performance, but quite often they're not really sure what they mean by environmental performance. So let's talk about water as an example. Uh, in our form of production, we use essentially no fresh water. The only water that we use in the actual production process is brackish water that we, we, we recover from underground aquifers. You can't use it for agricultural purposes. You can't use it for human consumption. And by law, we have to recycle over 90% of that. So we drill for oil. So what that means is that we actually disturb about 10% of the resource that from where, the land from where we produce the resource. We drill horizontal wells that go anywhere from 700 meters to 1.2 kilometers in length. If you had the opportunity to come out to our operations, you would see more wildlife in one day, uh, moose, bear, birds, all the trees are still there, than you'd see in Banff National Park. Uh, in turn, so that's, that's land disturbance. GHGs we talked about, you know, we, we have as a company reduced our GHG intensity by 27% since 2004. And we're not satisfied with that. And that's one of the things I find very frustrating is there, there seems to be an embedded assumption that we are satisfied with today's performance. I am a very strong believer in innovation and technology. We're investing about $200 million a year annually. It's all targeted, about three quarters of that's targeted at reducing our environmental footprint. You know, as I said, I am proud to work for an oil and gas company. We as Canadians should be very proud about the way the resource is being Develop. It is absolutely world class. It is really high tech. It is really innovative. 
And I hope everyone's taking notes out there on these facts, on the oil production. <laughs> so um, Keystone, Russ, has been a bit of a lightning rod for the oil sands and pipelines across Canada. Maybe talk to us a little bit about where you are in that process and whether you think that pipeline will actually be approved. I may start at the, at the end. Is, is I, I do believe the pipeline is, is going to get approved. Um, and uh, as, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the, the facts are, as, as I pointed out in my, my conversation, that um, the U.S. is the largest consuming nation on Earth. Um, the refineries in the Gulf Coast are configured to run, run heavy oil. Currently, they're buying heavy oil either from Venezuela or you know, railing it out of Canada to get it to uh, the market. And what we're seeing is production growing in, in both Canada and in, in the Bakken region of the United States. You know, Keystone Pipeline traverses right, right through all of that new production and takes it to that, that biggest refining center in the world. Eventually, you have to pipeline connect those two things, unless you believe in a world where they're not going to refine anymore and, uh, and we're not going to produce anymore, and I don't believe in that world. So it will get done. Um, I believe that we're getting to the end of the environmental review process. I hope to see an environmental impact statement. Uh, this will be the fourth one that we've had. Um, I expect that its conclusions will be the same as the first three, which is that uh, the, the pipeline can be built responsibly and it won't have a major impact on the environment or greenhouse gases. And then that will lead us to a national interest determination and, and clearly you know, be my view to be in, in the interest of both of our nations to, to approve it. So we get there eventually. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that was a yes. <laughs> so moving forward. Uh, okay, so a question from the audience. How do you see the, royal, the role of rail transport of oil across Canada, and how can Canada make it safe to transport uh, rail, uh, oil by rail? We've had some pretty uh, horrible disasters in the last year. Yeah, maybe I, I could start since okay. we do move uh, oil by rail. And, you know, the first thing, you know, it, it's critically important to us, public safety, you know, the, the tragedies that we've seen, the, the, the uh, derailments, uh, four of them in the last year, these things are not supposed to happen. Uh, nobody is, is in any way complacent about that. Public safety is absolutely paramount to me, to my company, to our industry. We want to make sure that every barrel we produce, whether it's moved by pipe or whether it's moved by rail, reaches markets safely. Now, I, I expect that we're going to see some new regulations that come in in terms of the process, in terms of what, making sure that uh, we, we know what's in rail cars. We know that there's new standards probably going to come in terms of the safety of the new cars, double hull. You know, my company, for example, uh, has uh, entered into a lease where we're going to take 825 new uh, rail cars that will start coming on in the third quarter of this, this year. Uh, that'll allow us to get up to about 30,000 barrels a day that we're moving by oil. These are state-of-the-art. They'll be the safest cars that, uh, that are out there. I, I really, as, as a producer and as a marketer, I see rail complementing pipeline in terms of transport. We will continue to, the vast majority of our oil is going to move by pipeline. It is the most efficient, it is the cheapest way, and it's the biggest volume way. But rail, what it does is it complements it and allows us to to produce a product by underblending to what we don't have to blend to a pipeline specification. We can reach these mar niche markets where refiners may not be pipeline connected. What about the light crude coming from the Bakken? Is that really an issue? Is it dangerous to transport? Um, there are many, many hazardous goods that have been transported for decades 
by rail. Bakken crude uh, is, because it is a lighter crude, it is more flammable and more volatile. So it does need to be handled in uh, a very, very safe fashion. Uh, I expect that that's one of the big things you're going to see in the new regulations that will be coming out is that there's a clear labeling and, and different safety procedures to ensure public safety around that. Okay, just I'm going to quickly put you on the spot. Three major pipelines, Energy East, Gateway, and Keystone. Which one gets approved and shovels in the ground first? I should let Russ out. <laughs> He's got a conflict. <laughs> All of them need to get approved. All okay. of them need to get is I, 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 I believe that uh, um, you know, in terms of the sequencing of those, you know, Keystone is the one that's the furthest along in its regulatory mm -hmm. review process, so it's the one that should logically get the, the shovel in the ground mm -hmm. first. Um, but uh, um, as we've seen, I mean, these things get delayed for reasons that are beyond our control. Um, but what I can tell you about that project is the pipeline is all on the ground, the pumps are in the uh, warehouses, um, the land is all procured, um, and we're ready to start construction. And as soon as we get that approval, um, we'll be under construction. Okay. A quick question from the audience about the price of Western Canadian crude. The, the concern is there's such growth going on in the U.S. in terms of oil production with fracking and multi-horizontal fracks. Um, what is that going to do to the price of oil, and how does that impact the economic outlook and the viability of your projects long term? Uh, so one of the things that I think is really misunderstood about oil sands is it's quite often viewed to be the marginal barrel in terms of the economics. So let me give you a couple of, uh, of statistics. And, and my company actually does produce light tight oil as well. So the supply cost uh, for various forms of crude. Uh, supply cost is the uh, price of WTI equivalent that we need to achieve to generate better than a cost of capital return. Light tight oil runs 70 to $80 a barrel WTI equivalent to generate better than a cost of capital return. On our two producing oil sands projects we have today, Foster Creek, Christina Lake, between $35 and $45 WTI equivalent. So my economics are very strong. You know, that's one of the things that is, to me, so amazing about the oil sands. It is globally competitive. It has scale. We can compete. We have decades of growth ahead of us, and it is absolutely being developed responsibly. Now, in the short term, if we do not have additional access to market, we continue to see increases in supply, then you could well see discounts, for example, in the United States on, on U.S. oil, um, as opposed to just discounts on Canadian oil. That is the beauty of a free market system, though, is whenever there's an economic incentive, if there's too much economic rent that's going into one particular sector, then there will be ways and things that are achieved to be able to access new markets, and in this case, it would have to be export markets. So fully loaded price per barrel, including capital costs that you need to see oil at to make your projects economic? 35 to $45 35 a barrel. 35 to 45 fully loaded capital yes. costs. Good. Okay, let's switch over to another question from the audience. What benefits are your companies offering to First Nations whose territories your projects traverse? And is revenue being shared with First Nations? That's, that's a great question. And, and when I said, you know, there, there's an opportunity here for all Canadians. I think First Nations communities are sort of, you know, one of the, 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 the groups that are at the front of that list. Um, this is a, an opportunity like we've never seen in this country. Uh, 
just our projects. We've got two projects that go to the West Coast, two gas pipelines that go to the West Coast that we're working on. There's about 30 Aboriginal communities we traverse. Energy traverses about 180 Aboriginal communities um, from Alberta to, to New Brunswick. This is an opportunity for them to participate. And yes, they will participate in the revenues of the pipeline, but they'll also participate in the other benefits that we'll bring along, the job creation. Um, there are certain skills that those communities have, certain skills those communities want to acquire. Um, we can help build their businesses and help build sustaining economic models in, in those communities. And this is a once-in-a-generational opportunity to do this. So again, we have to get it right. Um, we have to focus on, on how we're going to do that. Um, but what I found in having those conversations to date is all, I guess that would be you know, 210 Aboriginal communities are very much engaged in this conversation um, and they want to participate, they want these things to occur. And, and they recognize, you know, my example that I had uh, in, uh, in Mackenzie Valley, um, the, the First Nations were our partners on that project and they saw the economic benefits fly out the window and they're very keen not to, not to let that occur. So this negotiation will be transparent, um, but what I can tell you is our, is our engagement to date, um, they're fully engaged and they are aware of the opportunity this brings to their communities. And, and it's our job to actually make those changes in those communities. Because as Canadians, I, I mean, fundamentally, if we can help solve that issue, um, that's going to make us all stronger. And, and this is an opportunity for us. We have a tool to do that today that we didn't have before. This is a, uh, an interesting question from the audience. So uh, as part of Canada's big conversation about oil uh, and recognizing that royalties flow to provinces rather than federally, uh, do you think Alberta and Saskatchewan would be prepared to surrender their provincial royalties in favor of a natural royalty that would benefit all Canadians? I think, I think that uh, summarized as, a, as, a as transfer, <laughs> transfer <Okay>. payments, right? <laughs> So uh, just, just so you're aware, there's actually five provinces today that produce oil and gas, all right? So it's, it's British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. So it's not just the West. Uh, there is a very complicated system of the transfer, transfer, uh, the transfer payment system, and actually my political advisor, Jim Prentice once told me there's only three people in the country that actually understand how it works. Exactly. But you know what I can tell you is that there's there's been uh, you know 21 billion dollars in payments from Alberta that, that have gone across the country. So there is a mechanism that is in place today that 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 shares that. Uh, but that you know so you're asking a question that applies to all natural resources, not just to Absolutely. oil and gas. And are you talking about reinventing the whole resource development system? And are all provinces going to surrender the uh, resources that, that they have? You know, that's one of the reasons why we have confederation is that we do believe in benefiting the whole country. I think maybe I'd, I'd just add to that is there are what I call sort of the, the, the not so transparent uh, mechanisms by which you know, these economic benefits are, are, are transferred across all the regions that we touch. Uh, you know, for example, our, our, on, our, on our gas main line that runs from Alberta through to, uh, you know, Quebec in the Northeast United States, 
we pay somewhere in the neighborhood of 170, 180 million dollars of property tax, and it's, it's linearly along all the communities that are affected. We're the single largest tax base in those communities, and they rely upon it for schools, roads, hospitals, clinics, those kinds of things. And as we build out Energy East, um, as I said, you know, those benefits will be not just in Aboriginal communities, but in every community across this country. So there already is ways that we can um, uh, you know, transfer benefits, if you will, um, from the producing location across all of those that, that are actually impacted by the project. And those are, you know, I guess things that people don't talk about very much, but if you remove them from those small communities, if you take a million dollars of tax revenue out of a small community that has a budget of a million and a half dollars, um, that's significant, and, yeah. and, and, and they depend upon those, those, those revenues. And I think those are things that, that, that we need to talk more about as Canadians. So one last question to wrap up here. Um, you're both very interested in uh, Canadian economic development for the oil sands and transportation. How do you feel about building refining capacity in Western Canada? Uh, so my company does have investments in refining. Uh, those investments happen to be in the United States, uh, refinery in Illinois and one in Texas. Uh, th this is a question around sort of value added, and uh, you know one of the things, again, I, I made a comment about the free market system really works very well, and the free market system works really well in terms of the refining system as well. So what you typically have, and the most efficient way to get refined products that are needed in a local market, because there are very specific requirements in local markets around octane and those sorts of things, the type of product mix in, in that market, is to actually site a refinery where the products are consumed as opposed to producing them. What you would also be doing by adding additional refining in Western Canada is our transportation systems designed to, to, to ship a crude oil to a market where it can be refined for the specific needs of that market. If instead you turn that around and said, okay, we're going to um, turn that crude oil into a various refined products and then try to find a market for it, we then have to build a whole new pipeline infrastructure system, which would be entirely uh, prohibitive because you, you can't ship blended products to, to markets. I do understand can... there's a shortage of diesel in Western Canada. Is that correct? Uh, there, there has been at times a diesel shortage. I think shortage Wall other... told me they were rationing it in Saskatchewan before Christmas. Uh, yeah, and that, that again is a seasonal factor, and if it makes economic sense to expand, for example, there's a refinery in Saskatoon, and if it made sense to expand it, I'm sure it would get expanded, but if, you're, if you start to create artificial things where you've got, for example, governments subsidizing refining capacity, well, where's that, where that subsidy coming from? It's coming from everyone here in the room in terms of tax dollars to subsidize uh, a product. You know, one of the simple analogies I have also is it's really a similar question to saying, okay, rather than exporting wheat from Western Canada, what we should do is we should turn that all into bread and find markets for the bread. Pasta's better. Less air. <laughs> Russ, do you have any thoughts on that one? Oh, I, I think that uh, Brian's exactly right. I mean, new refining capacity hasn't been built in North America in, in decades. Um, 
it doesn't make economic sense. There's an oversupply of capacity today, and to build more capacity doesn't make any sense. What people want to buy from us, if you're ExxonMobil, for example, the, you know, pick the you know, largest global um, uh, refining, marketing, production enterprise, um, they have refineries in the Gulf Coast, and they have oil production in, uh, in all over the U.S. and in the Canadian oil sands. Is it makes sense for them to connect their production to their refinery and not build a redundant refinery and shut down the other refinery. That just doesn't make economic sense. If you're in India and you've built a large-scale 2 million barrel a day refinery, which they have done, um, it makes sense to come and access heavy crude oil from Canada. It doesn't make sense for them to come and access light products um, and gasoline because they don't need them. They, they're going to you know, go buy the, the, uh, the heavy crude oil from Venezuela. So the product that we have to offer that the world wants is our oil. And, you know, as Brian said, if, if there are shortages in certain places, economics will dictate, you know, we, we need to fill those shortages and expansion of refineries will occur. But refining, just to be clear, I, I, you're the guy that runs it, it seems like it's a pretty tough game most of the time. It has its times when, when the margins are large, but there's surplus capacity. Um, and, and the intent is, is often to build surplus capacity to be able to meet market, market needs, and market needs change, so you're left with this capacity. So. I'm with Brian, is, is, is spending taxpayer dollars to subsidize um, uneconomic development doesn't, doesn't make any sense, and in the long run, you get yourself into difficulties doing that sort of thing. Great. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. Thank you very much for your questions from the audience. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and I think thank Gordon you. or Danny will come up and thank the speakers. So thank you. Very, I think we stay here. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Danny Asaf. I'm a board member of the Canadian Club and a vice president. I have the, the honor and the privilege of thanking these two gentlemen for taking the time and illuminating some of the complexities involved in this very important and critical resource we have in this country. And the complexities involved are a reflection of the many constituencies that, are, that they have to consider in developing this, whether it's customers, suppliers, the Canadian communities that are near the places of production, of course the provinces that rely on the investment, and everyday Canadians that look for job and employment and a future in this industry. And what we've heard today is they are not satisfied with the way things are and are always striving to improve, and those involve some unknowns. But what we do know from today is some knowns. The global and the Canadian economy will grow. Energy will continue to be an important driver of that and Canada will remain critical, and that Canadians should be trusted to bring that energy to Canada and the world. And another known that has come out of today's discussion is we have Canadian companies and we have Canadian leaders that should be trusted as well. And it's on that note that I want to thank both Mr. Ferguson and Mr. Gerling for your starting the conversation today here in Toronto at the Canadian Club. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you wishing you continued success with your endeavors for Canada and for the world. Thank you very much, and have a good afternoon. Thank you, Danny. Uh, I'd just like to echo Danny's message. You know, it's not just pipelines that connect, but it's conversations like this. So, Brian and Russ, thank you very much for being here. 
and Susan, thank you for moderating such an engaging um, discussion. Our sincere thanks once again to CIBC for making today's event possible. And just before I conclude, I'd like to thank Green Soil Investments for sponsoring a group of grade seven students from St. Michael's College Schools who are in the back. We like to start them early at the Canadian Club, so welcome, students. Before I adjourn, before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to the event survey cards at each of your tables. Please fill them out as we value your feedback, and please leave them at the tables on your way out. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV for their continued promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club and to order tickets to any or all of our events, please visit us at canadianclub.org. Thank you once again for being here. This meeting is now adjourned.